Hey, today we're in Luke chapter 9. You can go ahead and flip in your Bibles there. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, in our story last week, um, Jesus, James, John, and Peter have been on the mountain, and they got to see Jesus uh, transfigured, changed into something totally different. They got a glimpse of his glory. Our passage today is set immediately following this event. They've come off the mountain, and they've come back down to reality. And in today's passage, what we're going to see, we're going to see Jesus' greatness highlighted in a totally different way. We've seen it in his glory, in his talking with Moses and Elijah. Now we're going to see it something different. The, the sad part of today's story is, though, that the disciples are so consumed with themselves, they don't even see Jesus' greatness. They're going to have an argument about who is the greatest. Now, there's a lot of arguments today about who is the goat, as the kids say. Uh, I say that too. Goat is greatest of all time. If we're talking basketball, the arguments between Michael Jordan, LeBron, anybody else? Okay, yeah, I'm, no. If it's, if, it's, if it's soccer, we're talking Pele, we're talking Messi, we're talking Ronaldo, right? None of you care about soccer, okay. Um, but people get real passionate when we start talking about GOAT, when we start talking about the greatest of all time. And I, I can imagine the, the arguments that were actually happening as Jesus is walking with these disciples, and they're debating amongst themselves, not who is the greatest. Is it Jesus? Is it this? They're debating, is it John? Right? It's a little silly. But Jesus is going to lay out today that greatness is not found in statistics. Greatness in the kingdom is not about your relative ranking over someone else. It's not about your position. It's not about power. Jesus is going to say something totally different than what we would say about basketball or soccer or tech or anything. Jesus is going to say that greatness is found in serving, in being the least in the eyes of the world. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Verse 46 an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. 
and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth that's revealed in it. God, I thank you for the lessons that we learned from it, God, but I thank you mostly for the good news that's proclaimed in it, that the way to be a part of your kingdom is not through self-achievement. It's not through our own spiritual exploits and how many miracles or how many things we have done for you, God. But the only way we can have access to you is by humbling ourselves and coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do this on my own. I need you to save me. God, and so we thank you for this good news that we are not the greatest. We are not the ones that are exalted, but it is you and you alone. And so we turn our eyes to you, God. We focus on you this morning. And God, I pray that your word would make sense. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, let's look at it. Uh, Jesus has been on the mountain, and he's come down, and he's back to reality. He comes down, it says in verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. We've seen this play out time and time again. Jesus' fame and, and, and uh, following is as big as it's ever been. It's, it's at a peak right now. It's about to head south, and he's about to head to Jerusalem. But there's this man who comes out of the crowd And he has a problem that day. And we've seen this story play out time and time again. Luke's given us these examples where Jesus has cast out demons, where he's he's even brought young boys back to life from the death. He's done all kinds of things. And not only that, Jesus has, has since then has sent out his disciples to do similar things, right? Cody talked about it a few weeks ago. He sends out the 12 disciples to go and do this same kind of ministry. So that they had cast out some demons. They had healed some people in the name of Jesus. But on this story, the details are a little different. So let's look at it. It says, on the next day, verse 37 So Jesus, James, and John, they'd been on the mountain, and they had experienced Jesus' transfiguration. And while they're up there, the other disciples are really who knows what. So I'm filling in some blanks here. But they're down in the city, and what seems to have happened was that they, they had been trying to do the same things Jesus had commissioned them to do previously, right? They're trying to heal people. People are coming to them with their needs, and they're trying to, to help people. <laughs> Think about it. These four guys are up on the mountain experiencing the, the most incredible glory they've ever experienced, and these guys are down here dealing with demons and dealing with tragedy and dealing with brokenness. But this time... <laughs> It says that they were unable to do it. Man, they're, they're unable to do it. 
And I don't know the reason for this, to be honest. We can fill in some blanks from the scriptures, but it shows us an important point about whatever these spiritual gifts are. They're from God, and they're given for a purpose. Spiritual gifts are not some superpower like spidey sense or like I can shoot stuff out of my forearms. That's not what a spiritual gift is, right? Because if I could do that, I'd be doing it right now, right? I'd stick it on the wall right now to show off. Why? Because you would think I'm awesome, right? But spiritual gifts are not like spidey sins, right? Spiritual gifts are not superpowers that we use for our own good, right? Jesus gives them this ability, why? To glorify him for his good, right? And it seems that maybe the disciples have gotten their their motives a little twisted. Their heart is not just about, hey, we want to help people. Or, hey, Jesus sent us to do this. Jesus wants me to do this. No, they're about it for themselves, it seems. Their heart has been twisted. It's been turned. And so, as it is, God does not want them to do this for their own glory. And so somehow he hinders them from being able to cast out this certain demon. It says that a man from the crowd cries out. He cries out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. The the accounts in Matthew and Mark give a lot more detail. And so you can go read those today. It's in Mark chapter 9, I know. But, but this, this boy, this, this man's only son, he is totally dominated by this demon, right? And the details that we get are, are really, really sad, right? When the demon attacks, he is totally incapacitated. He literally has physical effects. He foams at the mouth. He's completely overpowered. He has seizures, right? It says that he's being thrown down, And it takes a while before he can function. Again, if you've ever seen anybody suffer from seizures, you've seen a picture of this. But this boy is suffering more than just seizures. This demon is throwing him into dangerous situations. It says in other parts that he's thrown into the fire, thrown into the water. This demon is trying to kill him. And this boy, no doubt, is traumatized by this, and his father is helpless. He can't do anything about this. He's, he's tried, I'm sure, but he has no ability. This, this little boy is a picture of what it looks like for someone to be completely controlled by the enemy, right? He's completely controlled by the enemy, and the enemy's desire is not good for him. It's trying to steal, kill, and destroy But the father has heard about the healing power of Jesus. And maybe he's even heard about the healing power of the disciples and what they had done in Capernaum and in other places. And so he he brings his son to these disciples while Jesus is on the mountain. And can you imagine the hope he has? He's dealt with this with his son this whole time. and, And now he hears, man, there's people that can fix this. And he brings them, his son, to them. And what happens? They are unable to cast it out. Can you imagine the letdown of like, man, this is going to be it. This is going to fix this. This is going to be the solution. And then all of a sudden, it's hopelessness. Man, I thought that was it. And this happens all the time today with people who claim to be faith healers. They promise this this incredible healing, and people go and they don't experience it, right? Right? Can you imagine the massive letdown? 
But there's one glimpse of hope. He hears that Jesus wasn't there. So he thinks, if I can just get to Jesus. So that day, this man's a part of the crowd, and he cries out. This, the word is just like shout. I mean, he is whatever he can do to get Jesus' attention in this crowd. And so he, he cries out with the little bit of faith that he has left that maybe you can do something. And here he calls him teacher. In, in the other accounts, he calls him Lord. Right? So he has some perspective of who Jesus is, and he calls out. And here's the interaction in Mark's account. This is Mark 9, uh, 22 through 24. And he cries out, and, and, and the man says to Jesus, he says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You hear it? He says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, if you can, Jesus says, All things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I, what, a, what an honest statement that this father has. Okay, I, I believe, but I got some doubts. I, I believe, but I'm not totally sure this is going to work because I've been let down before by some of your people. Like, I believe, but I'm not, I'm not so sure, Jesus. This man believes, but he doesn't fully believe, just like many of us, Right? We believe, and we have days, and we have moments, and we have trials and doubts. Look at verse 41. And Jesus answered him, this is Luke 9, 41. Jesus answered him, O faithless, uh, I'm sorry, look at verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And so Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted generation. This is a, a huge put down in the Jewish community. This is not just words. This is, Jesus is disgusted by them. And who is he talking to? Is he talking to the crowd? Is he talking to the man? No, I think he's talking to his disciples, the 12 men that he's called out and said, you're going to be my followers. You're going to continue this on. He's, he's speaking about the disciples' lack of faith, their lack of belief in him, right? Remember, their hearts have been twisted. They've made it about them. They've made it about what they get out of it, made it about their own glory, and they've missed it. And Jesus sees this, and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, in Matthew's account, he tells us that it's their faith, their lack of faith, that hindered them from being able to cast this certain demon out. So we know their faith has waned, their faith in Jesus. Maybe they've relied on their own strength. Maybe they saw how bad the situation was and thought, Jesus can't fix that. Maybe they'd just gotten lax in their faith, but for some reason their faith had waned, it had become too little, and they were not able to heal Jesus says, how long am I to be with you and bear with you, right? If I said this to my kids, like, man, I, I sound very irritated with my kids if I say this. And Jesus sounds a little bit irritated with them, right? Why? Because of their lack of faith. He said, how long do I have to bear with you and your lack of faith? But, but Jesus is not over them, right? He's, I, I think he has this moment of humanity where he's like, 
I've proven this over and over and over. I've healed, I've cast out, I've raised from the dead, I've done miracle after miracle, and you still have no faith? We're no different. We read this scripture every week. We hear of how, what, what all that Jesus has done, and we come to the same point where we doubt, where we question. And I think the Father's heart for us is, man, I've proven it over and over that I love you and I care for you and I can do anything and there's nothing too strong for me. And I think Jesus in this moment is, is frustrated Not in a sinful way, because we know Jesus is without sin, but he's frustrated that they're failing to believe what has been clearly revealed. And so he says, bring your son here. Even though they don't have faith, because he calls them faithless. He says, bring your son here. Even though they don't, Jesus says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to do what you cannot do in your own strength. Look at verse 42. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. As Jesus calls this little boy, this demon sends one last attack to try to do anything he can. And this demon fights against this little boy. He throws him down. It's, it's a violent Uh, word. He throws him down. It's this one last attempt at fully controlling this little boy. He attempts to kill him so that Jesus's glory, Jesus's power cannot be seen. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't cast some spell. He doesn't bring out his essential oils. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that stuff, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to hate on essential oils. Uh, Jesus, it says, he rebukes him. Jesus simply speaks. No different than he's done to the disciples. No different than he's done to us. And what happens? The demon has to obey. The demon has no other choice but to obey and believe that he has to leave. You and I, we get this choice. We get to decide whether we believe or not. We get, to, we get to wrestle with, is this really true? Do I want to believe that? This demon, no. He's under full control of Jesus in this moment. And so he has to leave. I love the language here because it says, uh, Jesus rebuked him, rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy. You get the sense that Jesus took time with this little boy because he had been d- dominated and controlled and his, his physical appearance was probably a mess. He'd been thrown down. He'd been beaten up. He'd been thrown into the fire. And you get the sense that Jesus took him and he put him back together. He healed him. He didn't just cast out the demon and go on your way. No, he took time with this little boy. There's such care and compassion that we see that Jesus has for everyone the outcast. This little boy is nothing. Jesus doesn't have to take time with him, but Jesus loves him so that he doesn't just get rid of his demon, but he heals him. He puts him back together. He fixes his scars. And once he puts him back together, he sends him back to his father. Can you imagine seeing this that day? Can you imagine being in this crowd and witnessing such an amazing miracle? Look at the second half of 40, or starting in 43. It says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling, 
at everything he was doing, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Everyone in the crowd, the disciples, the crowd, the father, the little boy, they're all standing in amazement, right? And they know who did this. It says that they are astonished at the majesty of who? Of God, right? They realize that Jesus is standing there that's healing this little boy is God himself. And the disciples have just come off the mountain and they've seen his glory. Everyone in this crowd right now is, is just blown away with Jesus at what he can do, at who he is. There is such optimism. There's such energy at this moment. Jesus could have gotten that crowd to do anything he wanted. He could have riled them up to take up arms. He could have done anything because they are all glorifying him. They see his greatness. And it's at this point that Jesus speaks. And he speaks to his disciples. Look at verse 44. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Like, what a downer, right? You know, like, Jesus, you could have done anything in this moment. You could have riled him up. Let's go take it on. But he doesn't. He reminds them of what he came for. And it's not to be set up as a ruler. It's not to take over the Romans. It's not to be what they want him to be. Jesus came for a very specific purpose. And he reminds them of that. And part of that purpose is that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The sovereign ruler over all things. The one who simply spoke and cast out a demon. The one who previously has spoken to the wind and it obeyed. The one who has raised the dead back to life. The one who has created food out of nothing. The one who has control over everything and has demonstrated that time and time again. He says... I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. No longer am I going to be in control. No longer am I the one that's going to get to call the shots. These men, these evil men are about to. What an inconceivable thought for them at this moment. This Jesus and his majesty and his greatness and his glory. And you, you're going to be in the hands of men. You're going to be controlled by these men. I think it's so inconceivable, which is part of the reason why it says what it says next. They did not understand this. This is exciting. This is great. Jesus, we're taking over and we're your dudes and we're going with you. This is awesome. And Jesus says, now nah, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. What? They don't get it. That's what it says in verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They were kept from grasping what he had meant. He's already told them he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again once. I think he's told them again last week when he talked about his departure in Jerusalem. Now he says it again. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's made it very, very clear, but they do not understand it. They do not get it. Maybe they're just so impressed, they think, Jesus, there's nothing that can stop you. Jesus, there's nothing that can overcome you. But they're also scared of asking, so they don't. 
Look at verse 46. And just, just let that all sink in for a second as we read this verse. The context of what they've just been through and what Jesus has just said and what Jesus has just done. And look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Were they not paying attention? Were they really not on that mountain? Did they really not see these last two, two plus years of Jesus doing miracle after miracle after miracle? And they leave this crowd that day, and as we are, we get into this argument about who's the goat, who's the greatest. These 12 men arguing about who's, I just laugh. I just laugh when I read this. Because what has happened is pride has crept into these men's hearts and has, has taken control. Pride has crept in and it has taken control. It's the same picture of this little boy. That, that a demon has crept in and this demon has taken control. And this little boy is captive to whatever the demon wants to do. And the same exact thing has happened to these disciples. Pride has crept into their hearts. It has taken control. And now they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest when they've just seen all that Jesus has done. They are controlled and consumed just like the little boy. See, what pride does is pride separates us. The enemy wants to sow pride in our hearts, in Christians' hearts, because he wants to separate us. He wants to make you think that you're better than me. He wants to make me think that I'm better than you. He wants us to, to separate ourselves and to rank ourselves and put this is more important than that. And, and I do this and this is my resume, right? Pride separates us. It happens in churches. It happens in marriages. It happens in friendships. It happens at school. It happens everywhere. It's no different than this. It falsely puts us above others and it divides us. And this group of 12 men is meant to be united for one purpose, proclaiming the glory of Jesus, and they're arguing about who is the greatness. Pride doesn't just divide us, it distracts us. Pride distracts us from what we're supposed to be doing. These men are supposed to be helping other people, proclaiming the kingdom, and they're arguing about who's the goat. For us to stay united, what does it take? Not pride, it takes humility. For a marriage to stay united, what does it take? Not pride, it takes humility. For, for an organization to function with employees and employers and different goals and all that sort of stuff, what does it take? Not pride, humility, right? And what does it take for the kingdom to advance? What does it take for us to be united? Humility. Satan uses this wedge of pride to divide the disciples, to separate them, to, to sow discord. It's so funny that they're arguing about the greatest because Jesus has proven it over and over and over. And I'm sure they read Luke's letter later and they went, yeah, we were idiots. We really missed out on this. But I think in their minds, like, they're caught up in this. And they've been out on ministry and they've cast out demons and they've done some things. They got a little short resume of, well, I went to Capernaum and I cast out this one demon. And I went to so-and-so and I healed this little boy, da-da-da. 
And they got this cool little short resume. And Jesus has filled up a whole book with all the things that he's done. And they're comparing themselves to him. It's like comparing a rookie in the NBA to Michael and saying, well, I think this guy could be the goat. No, no, no. It's idiotic, right? And it's idiotic to think that these disciples are great in any sense. As it says, look at it. Verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. And he's going he's to do this illustration. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus doesn't speak to just their words. He doesn't just go, hey, guys, quit talking about the greatness thing. No, he speaks to their hearts. And he knows their hearts are wicked. And so he uses this child to make a point. I don't think it's the little boy that's been healed. He takes some other child and he puts him by his side. Now it's important for us because we value children. We just prayed for our schools today. We obviously value children. Here's a quote from a, a commentator, Daryl Bach, and he says this. In Judaism, children under 12 could not be taught the Torah, and so to spend time with them was considered a waste. For a Jewish man to put a, a, a Jewish little boy beside him was, was just utterly unfathomable. Because that is a waste. That little boy is nothing. This is the, the least of the least, right? And children were not valued. And so what does Jesus say? He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. What's Jesus doing? He's saying how you treat the least of these matters way more than whatever your short little resume says. How you treat somebody who is worth nothing says a lot how you receive me. And he's speaking to us too. How we treat the outsider and the excluded and fill in the blank with all the ways we push people to the side. How we treat them shows how we have received Christ. Coming to Christ is not about greatness, it's about humility. It's not about stature, it's about love. It's not about coming with all of our accomplishments and what we've done. No, it's coming and saying, I can't do it. Miss Barbara Ivy reminded me this week that the foot of the cross is level. We all come to the same point, a flat surface. No one is elevated over another, and we say, I need you. No matter what we look like, no matter what we've been through, there is no ranking of greatness at the foot of the cross. Just a bunch of sinners who need grace. And Jesus says, whoever is least among you is the one who is great. This is so opposite to how the world thinks. The world says, climb the ladder. Push others down as you get up there. Go get yours. Tear them down so you can be lifted up, so you can get the promotion, so you can look cool on Facebook, so whatever, right? Jesus says, that's not how it's going to be in my kingdom. He says, how you receive the least of these is how you receive me. And if we're not willing to humble ourselves, then, then there is no room for pride in the kingdom. It's about humility, not pride. It's about service, not greatness. Charles Colson said this. I was reading this week. He said, Jesus served others first. 
He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Jesus didn't come in glory, really. He came as a servant. And that's what we've been talking about the whole book of Luke, that it's the gospel, the good news for everyone, regardless of your status in society, regardless of your religious achievement. And we're meant to be transformed to look like Jesus. We're meant to be transformed from prideful to humble, from selfish to selfless, from self-focused to others-focused. And Jesus calls them out on this that day as they argue about who is the goat. Look at verse 49. I think John hears this and he feels some conviction. And John answered, Master, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. John feels this conviction. He goes, wow, we've really missed it. (laughs) We tried to stop this guy who was trying to help people. Why? Because he wasn't a part of our group. Because he wasn't a part of us. And so we, again, their hearts have been twisted. They had made it about them and their resume. And they wanted to cast out that demon, not that other guy. Right? They needed that for their resume. Pride breeds exclusivity. That I'm the only one who has a relationship with God. I'm the only one who understands this. I'm the only one who can do this. That's pride. And that's not this. The disciples had tried to to stop this man from helping someone because they wouldn't get the credit. Right? How wicked. Humility doesn't breed exclusivity. It breeds inclusivity. Yeah, that's the word. Inclusiveness. Including others. And humility promotes unity, not divisiveness. It promotes this, that, that we're not going to exclude you, but we're going to include you. And Jesus tells him, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. I don't know how this man has this ability to cast out demons. I have no idea. But what Jesus is saying this day, this is good for this man. We must be humble enough to admit that we are not the only ones who get it. Huntington First Baptist Church is not the only church. It's it's not the only church in Huntington, Texas that's proclaiming the gospel. We're not the only ones who have some whatever, right? There's a lot of other Christians in all over the world. And it would be so prideful of us to assume that we're the only ones who has this special insight, this special... No, we're simply trying to do what the Bible says, which is what every healthy church around the world is trying to do. It's prideful to assume that that it's only about us. It's about our statistics and our whatever. Humility drives us to unity. I got to close. Let's just think quickly about the main points of the story and then just how that applies to our lives. The first part of the story is about the disciples' ineffectiveness. They are not able to do what they thought they could do. It's about their ineffectiveness on their own. John 15, Jesus tells us to what? Abide in me and I in you. 
You are, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who, I'm, okay, I'm butchering this. He who is not connected to me will not bear fruit, right? We, on our own, about our own business, about our own motives, will be ineffective for the kingdom. We will not bear fruit unless we abide in Christ. All of our best strategies, efforts, time, money will go to waste if we do it apart from a connectedness to Jesus. That is the most important thing. It's the number one question, as the Stover House asks. That is the most important thing in your life. And so if we don't want to be ineffective, we need to abide in Christ. The next main point of the story is the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And we are not that different than them. And it's easy to laugh at them. It's easy to kind of scoff at their uh, silliness, their sin. But we're really not that different. It's so easy to rank and to compare and, to, and, and to, 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 to order things, to lift ourselves up above others or to put someone else down so that we look better. Let me just tell you today, it's a pointless comparison. It's like comparing Hudson, who didn't score a goal in Little League basketball year last year, to the GOAT. That's the comparison. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We are not great. Jesus is great. And Jesus tells us that for us, greatness is found in being the least. Service is the goal, not a stage. It's not about a spotlight or getting glory or, or building the resume. No, when we come to Christ, we come knowing we have nothing to bring. And we don't spend the rest of our life trying to prove that we deserve this. Right? It's about humbling ourselves. Let me pray. God, I pray this morning, just for my own heart, God, forgive me when I'm tempted to rob you of glory, to take away glory from you and point it on myself or our church or my family or whatever. God, God just forgive the selfishness in my own life. God, help me to be transformed from selfish to selfless, from consumed with my own self and my own desires, God, to being consumed with your kingdom. God, I pray that each one of us today, God, would realize that our resume, our spiritual good deeds, our whatever, that's not what earns us a relationship with you, God. God, it's simply grace that Jesus loved us enough to come to the cross to die in our place. And he proved his greatness and he paved a way for us to experience greatness, God, by humbling ourselves. And so I pray this morning, God, that as you convict through your Holy Spirit, through your word, God, that we would respond in obedience to your word, God, that we would humble ourselves. We would receive the least of these. We would proclaim the gospel to everyone, regardless of their, their skin color, their social status, or anything, God. May we um, be so consumed with what you have done for us that it would overflow uh, to the world this week and to our community, God. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.